This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Richard Aidy. Welcome to The Money. Just over a year ago, this was going on. The flood crisis in Lismore is quickly escalating, catching many by surprise. Water's already topping the levee banks and thousands of people have been told to evacuate. Floodwaters are predicted to reach 14 metres, more than a metre higher than a record set in 1880. Lismore was a disaster, a disaster that in some ways is still ongoing, in part because many people were underinsured or not insured at all. Just last month, there was a much bigger disaster, half a world away. The earthquake in Turkey killed tens of thousands of people and destroyed or damaged 160,000 buildings. Two million people have now left the region. Recovery has barely begun, and again, the shortfall in insurance is going to be a problem. Exactly the kind of problem that Paula Jasubkowski looks at. Paula's at the University of Queensland Business School, and she's an expert on insurance protection gaps. Paula, if we start with Turkey, what will the shortfall be? Yes, so the numbers coming out of that would indicate that about one billion of that is insured, which gives you an idea of the, well, as you said before, the most recent earthquake, how much there is what is called an insurance protection gap in Turkey, uh, which will all slow down the ability to rebuild for people to get their lives and livelihoods back on track. They have a catastrophe insurance pool there, don't they? Yes, that was established with the help of the World Bank as a means to get further insurance penetration. Often countries with lower incomes or with uh, different levels of financial equality struggle to get insurance penetration and things like an insurance pool can help more people to get an insurance product. So what else can Turkey do to ensure they have better coverage for future shocks? Because they are where they are. They're going to have earthquakes. So I think there's two things. One is that the Turkish Catastrophe Insurance Pool was quite successful in getting penetration early on, so it tied it to things like taxes and utility bills, but it's important to ensure that that insurance penetration and rollout continues so that you're getting a meaningful level of insurance in the population. But also what's absolutely critical is that you examine how that relates to resilience and the building codes. So where are you building and how are you reinforcing changes in building codes? So, for example, a great deal of rebuilding will need to go on. For that to actually have any meaningful insurance tied to it, resilient building codes will need to be enforced. So when a great swathe of an area is is destroyed, as indeed we had in Darwin with a Cyclone Tracy, mm-hmm. you have an opportunity to rebuild from the ground up in a different way. But, of course, that's expensive. Yeah. Well, it goes to design and construction and compliance and all sorts of things. Can you tell us about what other countries or perhaps other regions are doing to kind of close this coverage gap? So there's some very interesting innovations. So I mean, there's two things. There's one which is advanced economies like Australia have insurance, but they have a problem with receding insurance Uh, disaster insurance in the face of climate change. What we've also got is these developing and emerging economies that are trying to build some sort of insurance-based resilience. So they would have low insurance, but how do they get more insurance into their disaster response? I think it's worth us talking about some really important innovations that have happened there just a bit more than a decade now. 
which is called disaster liquidity insurance. Uh So one of the critical things in these lower income economies, well, in any country, is the speed with which you can mobilize capital straight after a disaster, because that allows you to do things like get the generators on, get the water clean, get people into temporary shelter. And that really needs to happen in the very immediate aftermath. These are really interesting products because they are based on what's called parametric insurance. So it's a chunk of money that's not tied to the reconstruction. It's just if, for example, you have a hurricane and the wind speed blows at a certain pre-agreed level in a particular area, then that will trigger the release of this disaster liquidity lump of money. And a country can have that within you know, less than a week. And it knows it's got that money, so it knows immediately that the disaster happens, that it can start to plan how it rolls out its disaster response. So this is on a specific wind speed or specific precipitation or soil moisture, something like that. It just happens automatically once that number's reached. That's right. It's just a sort of money that's in a vehicle. And if, if there's no disasters, the investors get their money back after the period of time. But if there are disasters, then that money is already sitting there waiting and it just pays immediately. So it can be for hurricane. It's mm-hmm. been effective for drought in Africa, so which is based on satellite greening and soil moisture. It's also effective more recently for excess rainfall because one of the features of hurricanes and the way that they're changing is that they tend to hang around longer, hurricanes, cyclones, tropical storms, and release more water. So excess rainfall has also become a problem for countries, and they are effective for that as well. And do the Pacific nations to our north and east also use this kind of product? Yes, it started in the Caribbean. It's been very effective in the Caribbean for about 13 years now, Um, and that one was set up by the World Bank. Another one was set up in Africa around drought, which was set up by donor countries, particularly Germany and the UK. And the one in the Pacific has been set up by the World Bank. So it's, this is about pooling. This is about several people or several donors or several countries putting money together and then you get a trigger point and it goes to them that need it. And it's not about so much rebuilding in this case, it's more about that initial disaster. Yeah, and the reason they're quite innovative is both the nature of the product, which isn't tied to the amount of damage you experienced, because obviously you can imagine that's quite slow. You've got to wait, as we are in Australia, sometimes 12 or 18 months to know how much damage and how much payout, but you want the money immediately. And the other thing is that it's multiple countries come together. Mm. So the Pacific Catastrophe Risk Insurance Company, PICRIC, it pools the countries and then that makes it cheaper for all of them to buy their product because it's just diversified. One of them might have a disaster or two, but not all of them. So that makes it cheaper for each of them. So before we get on to the the advanced economies, Paula, I'm also interested in loan agreements for natural disasters, a sort of contingent credit line, not insurance exactly, but favourable loans. What are these and, and how conditional are they? So this is another form of what we call anticipatory financing. So disaster financing It's really good if it's anticipatory because you're not scrambling for cash straight after the disaster uh, and not hoping that the humanitarian environment might be able to respond, keeping in mind they don't have big cash reserves sitting around either. They then have to mobilise. So these CAT DDOs, 
so catastrophe deferred drawdown options, are you've agreed a loan on a particular set of principles and when you have a disaster, you can immediately draw on that loan and it has favourable repayments and you know it is there. So you pre-arrange financing for a disaster. And you'll see that a lot of these uh, lower income countries have these arranged with the World Bank. They are a softer trigger. So insurance has to be based on a disaster, mm. whereas these can be based on the moment that the country declares an emergency. And this is what happened in Tonga after the volcano. So they got $8 million from this CAT DDO, and that meant that that was there. It was already prearranged that if any kind of disaster happened, government just has to declare a state of emergency, and then it can access that money. Now, there are contingencies because, of course, the World Bank doesn't want to work with countries and put them in a position of debt that they can't afford. So it's like, how much might you need? They have to get in place their disaster risk management plan and the disaster risk response plan as part of taking out this deferred drawdown option. On The Money Today, we're hearing about insurance and I suppose other financial instruments that are available to help deal with natural disasters. Paula Jasubkowski is unpacking it for us. She's a professor of strategic management at the University of Queensland Business School. Paula, if we turn to the more advanced economies, how does what we have work in Australia and and come to that New Zealand in the wake of Cyclone Gabrielle? So we've got a few interesting things going on there, really. So we do, and you're probably aware, have something of what I would call, call it a disaster insurance crisis. We know we have a climate crisis. Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that increasingly a number of people in Australia unaffordable or unavailable premiums for particular types of disasters in particular flood because of what's happened over the last 12 months. So what we have there is a retreat of genuinely affordable private market insurance. In New Zealand, they already had that thing for earthquake. They faced that in the 1940s, that private sector insurance really didn't want to cover earthquake. And they set up the uh, New Zealand Earthquake Commission. So in that sense, they'd already dealt with this notion that there was retreat from the private sector insurance. Mm put in place what's called a risk pool, just the same as what we have with these countries, that would subsidise. That would mean everybody was covered, but also that those premiums could help subsidise those that were probably at more risk of the disaster. We haven't had something like that in Australia, but we have very recently set up the North Australian Cyclone Reinsurance Pool because Cyclone had become in Northern Australia unaffordable or unavailable for many small businesses and for many householders. And so the idea is that this will provide an available product and hopefully that that will also reduce the premiums so that those people can get into insurance. Because if you can't, aren't insured, you know, you struggle to get a mortgage, you know, you fall outside the financial safety net that we all take for granted, which is you have a home, you get it insured, if there's damage, it can be reconstructed. If it's not insured, well, actually, unless the state pays for its reconstruction, you stand to lose a great deal of your homeowner wealth. That Northern Australia pool, as you know, the rationale for setting it up was that's predominantly where we get cyclones, of course, and there are more people living in Northern Australia who can afford insurance premiums that people in Southern Australia can afford. But immediately, of course... Not long after it was uh, established and people were talking about it, we had the disasters that hit Lismore. And, of course, Lismore doesn't count as Northern Australia. 
No, it's a very specific terms. The it's for cyclone only. The flood that eventuates from cyclone, it's a very short period of time after that, mm. so that the flood damage caused. But I do think we are going to need to be a little less disingenuous about the flood that comes from cyclone. So if we think that cyclone has flood, that flood doesn't stop in northern Australia. It pushes the water down. Cyclones that have not hit Brisbane have caused mass flooding as they pass on their way inland or down to Brisbane. So we're really going to have to deal with the cyclone-induced flooding and how far it spreads, which is away from northern Australia. In addition, I think we need to draw lessons from the fact that we now do know how to pool to deal with the Lismores, the Brisbans, the Tasmanias, the, the very widespread flooding that we've had over the past 12 months. What are we going to do about those people? Because they will not be able to afford insurance after this. We could look at some form of reinsurance pooling. There are strengths and weaknesses of that. But certainly, if we don't want people not to have insurance, then we need to start deciding what we're going to do. Well, one approach may come from Europe. You've written about three advanced economies, Spain, France and Switzerland, and they have in place something called Protection Gap Entity. Uh, this whole area does love its acronyms and, uh, and names that trip off the tongue, but can you briefly explain how it works? Let's think of them as PGE. It's like PPP, it's PGE. Um, so, we have this in a few countries. The most effective ones are in Spain, France and Switzerland. They are what we call multi-peril, which means they deal with multiple disasters. It means that everybody who buys their insurance policy, the disaster component of that goes to this PGE, which is run by the government. So it's a risk pool, if you like. But the advantages of it is mutualizes. So it diversifies all the risks across the entire society and it diversifies across all the possible disasters. So in Australia, we have cyclone, we have flood, we have fire. We could pool all of those mm -hmm. and there's a disaster component. That means that that entity is responsible for the claims from any disaster. And you can see that that sort of smooths it because some people are more prone to flood, others to cyclone, others to fire. You could then say that, okay, everybody's covered for disaster and we've got this kind of diversification of that. It's fairer for everybody because it's the disaster that matters to you. You'll get your cover from that same group pool. Um, so that's how they work. What they also learn through that is a great deal about how disaster affects the country. And it's, it's a very effective because the private sector takes all the insurance, but it passes the disaster component through to the government pool to deal with. Doesn't it require, though, or doesn't it need a very high penetration of insurance <coughs> across households? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the controversial bit, which is that in these countries it's mandatory. You buy insurance and you buy disaster insurance as part of that, and it's a flat rate. It's prorated to the value of your property, but it's a flat rate. And it means that you have, well, sometimes 95% penetration. Mm. Switzerland has 95%. Spain and France look comfortably at over 80%. And when a country is that well insured, it's very robust against disaster. Indeed, New Zealand, after Christchurch, was 90% insured of the yes. earthquake. So is this something that we should be in Australia moving towards, given that climate change seems certain to hurl more and more challenges that give us disasters? Should we be moving in this direction? 
I think we should very definitely be considering this very seriously for two reasons. So one is the climate actuaries did a report last year that showed one in 10 households in Australia is already under extreme insurance stress. Now, that report came out in October based on the data they had. So that hadn't factored in the most recent round of flooding or indeed Cyclone Gabriel. So if we take it that already one in 10 couldn't afford insurance. Extreme stress means more than four weeks of household, gross household income to buy a meaningful premium. And I think we'd all say, wow, that's, that's, that's just not something I can afford. It's a lot of money, yeah. So in that sense, I think we really have to start facing that. And I think that a protection gap entity that's well-designed will allow all Australians to spread the risk and all Australians to benefit. Because what we have to remember is it's not just oh, well, why should I? I don't live in Northern Australia. I don't get cyclones. A, I think that Gabriel has shown us through its behaviour in New Zealand that we're not as confident about what cyclones do and do not do as we might have thought. New Zealand didn't think of itself as a cyclone-prone country. So one, it protects us against the randomness that climate change is bringing. But two, because it could be multi-peril, it will protect each Australian from the disasters most salient to them. And also... All Australians pay anyway after a disaster. This is a way that we all buy into that in advance. It's that prearranged financing I talked about. We make sure that people before the disaster happens know the money will flow afterwards. But it does have limitations, uh, which I'd love to talk about as well. Very briefly. Okay, so the limitations are that if we only do the insurance part and we make the insurance affordable, but we don't change how and where we build, if we use this insurance to mask the problem, and that is the biggest danger, that's what's happened in the US, Mm -hmm. the National Flood Insurance Program has masked and allowed rebuilding in places that kept getting flooded. We have to not do that in Australia. We have to use which Switzerland and France do very well, this data to help begin managed retreat and to help build in different ways to prevent things like sale of properties that we know are uninsurable. One of the values of making this into something that's Australia-wide and owned by a collective group like a protection gap entity is we then know where the risk is and we can use that information to start changing the way we build and where we build, because climate change is going to make that worse. So we just really need to make these things servants of climate adaptation, not just masking the problem of disaster. That's a very good point on which to finish. Paula, thank you very much for joining us today on The Money. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciated having the chance to talk. Paula Jarzovkowski is at the University of Queensland Business School. You may not be aware of it, but the biggest review of immigration for many years is underway at the moment. Actually, it's due to be delivered to the government. Before the pandemic, immigration was powering our population growth and so responsible for the growth of the economy. I should say that GDP per capita hasn't been growing, but GDP has. So, as you can imagine, the recommendations in this review will have a huge impact on the Australian economy. Brendan Coates has been thinking about this a lot. He's the Program Director of Economic Policy at the Grattan Institute. Migration is actually one of the most underappreciated levers of economic policy today. And that's because migration has enormous impacts on the well-being of Australians. Now, 
the biggest way migration affects Australians is frankly that we get access to a whole bunch of human capital through the skill program where people have trained themselves abroad, they've gone through their higher education, they've developed skills in the job, and then they come to Australia and we get the benefit of that, frankly, without ever having to have paid for it. So, you know, your typical skilled migrant who comes to Australia, they offer a fiscal dividend to Australia over their lifetime. So how much they pay in tax, less what they draw in services and benefits of somewhere between three and $500,000, depending on the part of the skilled migration impact. On top of that, there's potentially productivity benefits and then also potentially knowledge transfer to the local workforce. So there's potentially really big benefits here. There are also costs. Housing is the big one. But on average, if we're choosing people that are very skilled, those benefits will vastly outweigh those costs. The challenge, though, is that we don't think about migration that much as an economic policy lever at the moment. And the way we even think about skilled migration is really muddled. So the way we think about skilled migration is that it's about shortages. But if someone's coming to Australia and they're in the workforce for 30 to 40 years, the priority should be choosing the person for permanent visas who is the most skilled person you can find. And you shouldn't compromise on that in order to select someone who might be less skilled but might fill a skill shortage in the economy that's only going to last a couple of years. Right. So hang on, let, let's sort of go back a step. How many people are living in Australia who are on temporary visas and can work there's about 1.9 million people in Australia today that have work rights. That includes New Zealand citizens who are not technically here on a temporary visa, but they don't have a permanent right to stay here. And that number, as I understand it, is not capped. No. So Australia runs an uncapped temporary program of a combination of students, working holiday makers, temporary skilled visa holders. So this is the old 457. It's now the temporary skill shortage visa and then New Zealanders. Those programs are essentially uncapped. And then we run a permanent program, which offers this year 195,000 visas a year. By comparison, we tend to offer about 500,000 of those temporary visas a year. And that's what's led to the increase in the stock of people in Australia on a temporary visa rising from less than a million people back in, say, 2007, 2008 to nearly 2 million people today. I would hazard a guess then that given those numbers, it's hard and probably getting harder to get a permanent visa. That's exactly right. So the share of people who are transitioning to a permanent visa within, say, four, five, six years of arriving in Australia has fallen, particularly the groups we look at are international students and temporary skilled workers. So for students... Those that arrived, you know, back in 2006, 7, 2008, you know, within sort of six years, about 25% of them had transferred over, over to a permanent visa. For those arriving more recently, say 2013, 14, 15, within six years, only about less than 15% have actually transferred across to a permanent visa. For temporary skilled workers, the old 457, historically more than half transitioned to a permanent visa within, say, four years. Now you're looking at, you know, more like 30%. So fewer people are transitioning to permanent visas. And this is just a matter of simple arithmetic. If you have more people coming to Australia on temporary visas and you do not change the number of permanent visas on offer, then it will be harder, there will be more intense competition for people to fit down that funnel and get a permanent mm. visa for themselves. Now, the human cost of this, of course, is stress and uncertainty and all sorts of stuff. If we put that aside, 
what effect does the uncertainty and the waiting time and not getting this stuff resolved have on the economy? It matters particularly for two reasons. First, it matters for who chooses to apply in the first place. So if it's unclear whether you're a chance of getting permanent residency, and permanent residency is a big motivator for at least half of international students to, to come to Australia, then you're less likely to choose Australia. And for skilled workers, you're less likely to choose Australia if it's unclear whether you can transition, particularly because skilled workers tend to be older and they have kids and families, to transition to permanent residency. The other reason it matters is because a lot of people do actually make it from temporary to permanent residency. So roughly three quarters of the skilled program each year in Australia is the permanent visas are offered to someone who's already here. And so, you know, there's this whole literature that says that if you join the labour market at a time when things aren't great for Australian locals, that it's bad for your employment prospects long term. It's no different that if you're stuck on a series of temporary visas for a while, you end up making choices you wouldn't have otherwise made. You can only work in certain occupations because that's all your visa will allow you to do. And then you do get permanent residency. You're probably going to be a less productive member of the community in the long term. Your skills will have atrophied. You'll contribute less to the economy. You'll pay less tax. And ultimately, the Australian community benefits less from that skilled migrant being in Australia because of their experience of trying to transition from a temporary to a permanent visa. So in a way, it's like a university graduate coming into the workforce when there's a recession on, as as has happened in the past. And you get this sort of generational effect that follows that cohort. Absolutely. So in the literature, it's called hysteresis. And that is definitely something that we think is probably happening with temporary migrants that find it hard to transition to permanent residency. The obvious answer, Brendan, is just to cap the temporary visas. Why, why would that not work? So there are three things that you can't both have. You can't simultaneously run an uncapped temporary program, a capped permanent program, and have everyone have a pathway to permanent residency. Now, the question is which side of that iron triangle do you actually want to sit on? At the moment, we sit on the side of not everyone has a pathway to PR. But there are big values trade-offs that we would be making if we changed. So you could cap or limit the number of temporary visas. Now, that's hard to do because a lot of these programs are, you know, they're uncapped because students are going to many different universities or employers are sponsoring many different people across many different occupations and businesses. And if you sought to cap them, obviously universities would be giving up fee revenue. The government would be giving up a bit of its tax take. There'd be a benefit for housing because there'd be fewer people here trying to compete in the housing market. But, you know, how would you decide which universities get to qualify for which number of student visas available? So there's certainly some scope probably to reduce the number of lower value courses that are eligible for getting international students in the door. Mm-hmm. You could probably reduce the number of working holiday makers would be another place. So you could do something there, but even that, well, you'll still probably have lots of people here on temporary visas that never make the transition to permanent residency. Brendan, you have the air of a man who has the idea that will work. Well, there are solutions here, but they're all going to be imperfect. We're balancing a set of trade-offs that are really, frankly, irreconcilable. And this is something the government is going to have to deal with. We think that the best thing the government can do is to try to make those pathways to permanent residency as certain as possible by selecting permanent skilled visa holders on the basis of the things that matter for their long-term 
sort of employment outcomes and which are the things that they would have done on their own even if the visa system didn't require them to do so. So the best measure for, say, employer-sponsored visas of someone's skills is the wage that the employer is willing to pay them. The employer has skin in the game. They are willing to put money on the line and say, I want to employ this person for, say, $90,000 and I think I'm going to get $90,000 worth of work out of them. So we would target those visas at those with high wages, which means getting rid of the current system where we basically restrict who can access those visas based on the occupation of which they work. And that occupation framework adds a lot of uncertainty, a lot of delays and a lot of cost into the system. There's a lot of moving parts in this, but I think that is enough for now. Brendan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Brendan Coates from the Grattan Institute. And that's it for now. The Money is produced by Kate McDonald. Our sound engineer is Hamish Kemaliri. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.